I'm Ted Seides, and this is Private Equity Deals. Middle market businesses are where the real action takes place. Around 200,000 businesses in the United States fall into the middle market size range, generally defined as generating revenue between $25 million and a billion dollars. These businesses collectively employ 50 million people, or almost a third of the U.S. workforce, and represent two-thirds of total U.S. private equity deal value. Big deals may grab the big headlines, but a lot of action in the economy and private equity industry takes place in the universe of middle market businesses. Season one of Private Equity Deals shared deals from eight well-known GPs. In season two, we discussed eight well-known companies bought by private equity firms. We can't begin to cover the massive middle market in just eight deals, but in season three, you'll get a tiny sliver of what the middle market is all about. All opinions expressed by Ted and podcast guests are solely their own opinion and do not reflect the opinions of capital allocators or their respective firms. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon as a basis for investment decisions. Past performance is not indicative of future results. Clients of capital allocators or guests may maintain positions in securities or managers discussed on this podcast. On the seventh episode of season three of Private Equity Deals, Hank Hartong from Brinwood discusses Hometown Food Company. Hank is the chairman and CEO of Brinwood Partners, a middle market private equity firm that invests in U.S. consumer-oriented businesses, primarily in the food, beverage, and personal care sectors. Hank's father established Brinwood in 1984, and the firm boasts an impressive 40-year track record of driving results through its hands-on operating expertise. Hometown Food Company is a manufacturer and marketer of an iconic portfolio of American baking brands that includes Pillsbury, Funfetti, Hungry Jack, Martha White, White Lily, Jim Dandy, Arrowhead Mills, Sunspire, DeWaffelbachers, and Birchbenders. Our conversation covers the creation of Hometown in 2018 through a carve-out from Smuckers, build-out of a new management team, systems, and supply chain, management of the business through the COVID pandemic, tuck-in acquisitions, and the resulting performance of the company. Please enjoy my conversation with Hank Hartong. Hank, thanks so much for joining me. Ted, thanks for coming over to see us. Why don't we just start with the background of Brynwood? So Brynwood was founded in 1984 by my dad. We'll be celebrating our 40th anniversary next year. We're really excited about that. We think that makes us a pretty unique firm in the industry. And he founded the firm with the concept of combining operating skills and investing skills together to accelerate performance. And in the mid-80s, as private equity was arriving as an industry, they thought he was out of his mind. But today, obviously, that's very fashionable. And we've started as a generalist firm. And when I joined the firm as the CEO of one of our portfolio companies, we started to sector focus around consumer products. And today, we have a concentrated portfolio in the food and beverage space. How do you describe your investment style in addition to that industry focus? Our big differentiator is we're not just about providing capital. We're about providing solutions and assistance to our portfolio companies. We take the attitude that we're better working together than we are apart and that our experience in having seen things that they might have not have seen before 
is going to help make the business perform better. So our focus is to, as my dad always told me, don't run this business from behind your desk, run it from the field. So we spend a lot of time with our portfolio companies in their offices, in our factories, with our customers, or whatever is really necessary to help the business get to where it needs to go faster. Right. Well, we're going to dive into Hometown Foods. Why don't you describe what the company is? So Hometown Foods started with the initial acquisition of the baking and dessert mix businesses from Smuckers. So if you're familiar with the Pillsbury baking mix business, so we don't own the refrigerated part of it. It's a split trademark with General Mills, but we own the brownie mixes, the cake mixes. And then within that portfolio, there's a bunch of other brands. There's the famous Funfetti brand, there's Martha White, White Lily, the Hungry Jack pancake mix, and so forth. What was the history of that business with the Smuckers and before? The business got split when Pillsbury was acquired by General Mills. It was owned by another group, and Smuckers acquired it and owned it for quite a bit of time. And ultimately, as it's decided to focus on its coffee and pet food business, they determined that this was a non-core asset of their portfolio and made the decision to divest it, at which point we acquired it in 2018. How did that process of the deal come to you? So I'm on the board of a group called the Consumer Brands Association, and a bunch of the big CEOs of the large food and beverage companies and CPG businesses in the U.S. are on that board, and Mark Smucker happens to be on that board as well. So Mark and I had gotten to know each other through the years. They had hired Goldman to sell the business, so we obviously were interested in it. So let's go through that process. The deal comes in about it. What do you do in your diligence at that point in time? This was a pure carve-out. We've done a lot of corporate carve-outs because one of the best ways to apply our strategy of combining operating and investing skills together to accelerate performance is to look at a business that isn't getting the operating attention that it needs and apply whatever's needed, whether it's supply chain, manufacturing, product innovation, sales, new management, whatever the symptom is, we look to find the cure. A company like Smuckers isn't going to sell the business less determined that the size of the prize for fixing it or for investing in it isn't worth it anymore. One of the key things we try to underwrite is what are the things that they didn't do for the last five years while they were determining what to do with the asset? And do we think we can apply the fixes quickly to the things that haven't been getting done so that we can accelerate the performance of the business? So what'd you find in this case? The one thing that was very interesting is it's got a few complicating things, which makes the universe of potential financial sponsors less interested because it's a trickier carve-out. It was hard for a strategic buyer because there are some brands like Duncan Hines is owned by Conagra and General Mills owns the Pillsbury brand in other parts of the store. So we felt that we were likely competing against other financial sponsors for the deal. And we knew it was a tricky deal because it's got a 650,000 square foot factory in Toledo there were no people coming with the transaction at all. So we had to start from scratch. When we closed, we had no employees. And the brands had been in decline, which is why Smuggers was selling in. So we knew the names were household names that we thought we could do things with. But the real thinking was this business has not been getting the attention and focus inside Smuggers. It's a big category with room for growth and innovation. And it's a tricky carve out. So we felt we could staff an organization and get the thing going again. It's clear to see what those risks are. What do you see as the opportunity? The Pillsbury name is obviously very well known. It was the number three brand in the space behind Duncan Hines and Betty Crocker, which is owned by General Mills. The other thing is being from the East Coast, we're very familiar with Pillsbury and very familiar with Hungry Jack, but we didn't know much about Martha White, White Lily, 
And for that matter, I wasn't all that familiar with Funfetti. And there's only so much you can learn from a diligence report or whatever research you're doing when you get into deals. Lots of you find out more about it after you own it. So we felt pretty confident that we could grow the core brands and that we could put energy and resources against it and find ways to do things that Smarkers just wasn't doing. What was your diligence process like as you're figuring this stuff out? Look, the business was a declining business, so big part of what we were trying to determine was what was the real run rate of the business. So the diligence that we went through was heavily focused on looking at the customers, the brand trends, the distribution gains, some of the key things in the financials about how they were spending money, not only with the retailers, but with the consumer, to try to really determine where do we think the first 12 months of this business is going to look like when we have it in our hands. And so that was a big part of what we were doing to try to determine what we should pay. The big thing we try to do is try to apply all the things that we know from our other companies. Because the nice part about our investment strategy and being sector focused is we don't have to learn the industry from scratch. We're in this space. We may not be in those particular categories, but we're doing and acting and operating the businesses in other categories of the store. So we understand supply chain and procurement and how to staff a sales organization, route to market and those things. And so we don't have to hire third-party consultants to do that. We really just need the financial work, the forensic accounting work, carve out financials and things like that. But the diligence itself is pretty easy for us to do because we're in the business already. How'd that take shape? Once we got further along in the process, we visited the factory. We could certainly tell that the factory was the critical asset to the business, but with shrinking volume, it wasn't getting the levels of investment that it needed. So we knew we needed to get more volume. That was clear. But that the workforce there in Toledo really wanted to see the business in the hands of someone that was going to look for a new path to growth because it obviously wasn't a priority for the previous owners to necessarily grow that business. So that was a big part of our due diligence. And then we knew that the retail customers, which are important partners to us, probably weren't getting the attention and focus. If you looked at in the five years before we bought the business, how many new products had been introduced versus the number of new products we introduced that first year we owned it was equal to the number of launches that they had in the five previous years. When you have a business that's not core to your portfolio, you're typically not doing those things. And we felt like through the process, there were clearly things we could be doing to accelerate the performance and build out the relationships with our customers. They had walked away from the seasonal business and the Funfetti brand around Valentine's Day or around Halloween, the colorful sprinkles that go on the top of the cupcakes or the cakes and the cookies and the other applications for it. That business had significantly been reduced and we accelerated all kinds of new products into that space. In fact, the Funfetti brand, when we acquired the business, was about $30 million in sales and today it's over 100. So you mentioned that you were buying the brands with no employees. You've got some people who have been running it, but you're not bringing the management team. How do you think about that in your process? We fortunately have experience with that. I remember sitting in this conference room with the M&A people from Procter & Gamble when we bought the Zest soap business from them, and we closed that deal with no employees as well. The difference on that deal was it was outsourced production. This, we did actually have employees, all the employees in the factory transferred with the deal, none of the corporate employees. So we negotiated a transition services agreement, which was enough time for us to stand up an organization, stand up an ERP system and do the conversion. So we had enough time to do it. We decided to put the company in downtown Chicago because it was a four hour drive to the factory. We wanted to be able to get to the factory quickly so that we could give the resources and the work that was going to be needed to reconfigure the product line and introduce a bunch of new products. 
So you mentioned this was going to be a competitive deal, although you knew a bunch of the strategics weren't going to be able to compete against you. How did the deal dynamic take shape? Look, it was a competitive process and the rationale for it was transparent to everyone because a big part of what we're doing as operating executives is trying to identify what the opportunities or the weaknesses of the situation are. And by showing the seller, maybe some of the things they didn't know about their own business through the diligence process, it helps you arrive at a valuation that's acceptable to both parties. How do you think about that valuation, knowing that you're going in buying a business that's been in decline? You think you can turn it around. You have to win the deal. You don't want to pray for all those benefits that you're going to bring to the table. Yeah. I mean, this was a circumstance where we knew it was going to be hard for others to do it. Most private equity firms want to back a growth business and a first-class management team and ride it out. This was building an entire organization from scratch, including we had to go rent office space in downtown Chicago, and then we had to go onboard the whole team in Toledo. It was a complicated deal. And so it reflected that in the price because most financial sponsors are scared of those types of situations, or they don't have the operating skills. They have operating partners. We just have investment professionals that have operating experience. So once you won the deal and you own the brands, what was that initial, say, 90-day plan to get a team in place and start to execute? We went to a bunch of executives that had been in prior deals with us. So we were able to staff the sales organization with two people that had been working with us in other deals before that were looking for a new opportunity. The chief marketing officer and COO was also a Brimwood alumnus. So we hired them and we were able to find a bunch of good people. We had been looking at another deal the year before we acquired this and had been looking to staff that in Chicago as well. So we'd met a lot of people in the process that we reconnected with and were quickly able to build out the bones of the organization within the first 90 days. So I'd love to walk through what you did with this and maybe start with the services agreement. What were the key components of that in bringing this business out? The TSA is a pretty standard thing in a corporate carve-out because if a financial buyer is buying it, they need time to set up the company. And you got to convert all your customers from buying from the seller to the new co. And in the minds of Walmart, hometown foods didn't exist the day we closed. We had to go through all that. What we were focused on negotiating was a couple of things. One is the length. So we had enough time to stand up the company without rushing it because we know how long it takes. We've done 50 of these corporate carve-outs through the years. Number two, we wanted to make sure that the components of the TSA were decoupled from the different parts. For example, if we were able to onboard sales quicker than the length of the entire TSA, we wanted to be able to exit that part of it faster so that we were taking control of the areas of the business that we were staffing that weren't dependent on having our own ERP system. So that was a big part of what we did. Once you had gotten that worked out, there are a couple pieces you mentioned. The first is the supply chain. How did you go about improving what had taken place before you bought it just within the supply chain? We didn't do it right the first time. The management team inherited a system where about 90% of what we sell, we make. We basically inherited the same third-party logistics system. So what would happen, the product would get produced and it would be pushed out to one of the warehouses in the network. And I think there were four of them at the time. And it became clear there were way too many. It was inefficient. Product wasn't going to the right place. So the first year, we just shipped through the smuggler system on their trucks while the TSA was in place. Once we went over to our own system, 
we kept more or less the same system for about a year, but it didn't work as well as it should have. And we ultimately consolidated a big chunk of the warehousing in Toledo and then also found a third-party partner in Columbus. So we had one small additional warehouse, but really was 95% of what we're shipping is out of two locations. One of them is attached to the plant and the other one is not that far away. What are the metrics that you used along the way to know that, hey, this isn't working, as you said, as well as it should be? It's definitely not working when your orders aren't getting shipped. When you're not shipping on time and in full, that's OTIF is a very common term in the business. And our big KPI is, are we shipping on time and are we shipping in full? And at the time, in the first months in the cutover, we weren't and product wasn't getting picked correctly. Warehouse system wasn't doing its job and we knew we had to pivot. It's one thing to say, oh, we just redid the system. What are the steps that you have to take to make it work? First, you do a center of gravity study to find out what's the most efficient way to ship in terms of your cost of transportation. So there's a cost component and a service component. It doesn't matter if you set up a system that saves costs if you can't service the customer. You need to balance both of those things. So we did that center of gravity analysis and determined we'd be better off with fewer locations and having the product closer to the manufacturing point so we would have the flexibility to be able to move orders in and out of the system on a more reliable basis. And how about when you start thinking about the sales side of the equation? What did you see in terms of the business maybe left ignored for a couple of years that you could do to accelerate growth with those brands? A big part of it was we staffed the right people in the job that had experience working in other Brinwood investments. So they were familiar with going through a system conversion and vendor cutover to create Hometown Foods as the vendor of record for these customers. But they'd also been through circumstances where we had declining businesses or non-core businesses that needed attention. So we put our attention to our biggest customers. We do a lot of business with Walmart and Kroger and all the grocery chains. We have a nice business with the dollar stores. And we were able to leverage some existing relationships with the sales team we put in place that immediately brought credibility to what we were doing with the new company because obviously the retailers know the businesses we've acquired, they know the caliber of the people that we've attracted to run them, and our track record's really good. So when we buy a business that hasn't been getting focus and attention, the retailers know that if we staff it with the right people, that we're going to be able to get some performance out of it, and we'll be willing to do some things that the seller might not have been willing to do, invest in new products, try some new promotional vehicles, whatever the appropriate fix is, we're going to lean in hard in the first year to try to start addressing some of those things to get the retailers confident we can manage the business. What were some of those new products that you put out in that first year? Funfetti was one of the biggest things we did. And I remember I was taking an interview with Annie Gasparo from the Wall Street Journal when we did the deal, and Annie had covered our beat in consumer packaged goods, and she also covered Smuckers, so she was really interested in the deal. And she was interviewing me for the article, and she said, I'm really interested to see what you're going to do with Funfetti. And I said, I don't understand what all the excitement is around Funfetti. And we quickly came to realize that brand had tremendous amount of legs. One of the first things we did was start investing in just really was two flavors of Funfetti. It was the white cake and a few frostings with the sprinkles on top, the lids. That's the iconic thing about Funfetti. But we extended into a Funfetti brownie, into a Funfetti pancake mix, into cookie mixes, a whole new variety of cake flavors with Funfetti. So we probably added 15 or 20 SKUs in the first year and then accelerated the seasonal program. So we had traditionally had bats and pumpkins, black and orange for Halloween, we then introduced a slime product, a green one, with ghost-shaped 
sprinkles on top and just things like that that made sense and got a lot of traction with it. As you're rolling out that many different SKUs in the first year, how do you go about testing whether those experiments are working? In private equity, speed to the outcome in the end is the most important thing. And we try not to apply a lot of the traditional big company practices against our new product initiatives. So you'll hear the term in big CPG stage gate, which is an item goes from concept to commercialization over five different meeting paths. It's going to take a year to get these things done. We don't have time for that. So we pay our marketing people a lot of money to have good instincts. And when we see something we think is going to work, let's take it to three or four customers. The buyers at these retailers know what their customers and shoppers want. They tend to have really good insights on these things as well. What's going to sell, how to best to package it, what the price points need to be. And we find that trusting those judgments gets us a lot further along than waiting six months to focus test something that really doesn't need to be focus tested. If it's a good idea and you think it makes sense, then ship it. As you dove into the marketing and promotion of these brands, what did you do differently than what had been done before? The social media component of marketing fundamentally flipped. This deal was done in 2018, where you had been doing more traditional print and other types of media the move to digital was already happening, but it got accelerated in the time frame that we're in. When you'll follow some of our social media activity on Instagram for some of our different brands, you'll see a remarkable change in the way we market our products. And that was happening before we did the deal, but really got accelerated. You know, these brands lend themselves to that because baking is a form of art for many people. Young kids that are discovering baking, they want to show the new cake that they made on Instagram or whatever the social media outlet is, you become a big thing. Then transactions that are occurring through the digital shelf versus, and mostly originating out of the physical store. But that was another big change. First, it was how do they receive media content? And then it was how do they shop? It was the pandemic changed everything with e-commerce. So you'd mentioned early on that the warehouse was below capacity when you bought it. How did you think about filling up that capacity? When we bought the business, they were worried it was going to be shut down because the sales had been dropping, the pounds produced at the factory had been dropping every year. And we looked at the things that needed to be addressed and went immediately into those spaces to try to develop new products to get more cases and pounds through the system. Looked at which lines had available capacity and where we thought we could get some products that would create some interest. And that's what we did. We significantly increased the sales of the core products we acquired through that effort. And we changed out a lot of equipment. If there was some old equipment that wasn't really meeting productivity standards, or if we needed to do a new product that required it, we built a whole gluten-free room in the factory. So it's self-contained because we were using third-party manufacturing for some of our gluten-free products and the service reliability was terrible. I said, we got to bring this stuff in-house, but you got to be very careful with cross-contamination with gluten. So we built a captive room and all the equipment for handling and processing that is now inside the Toledo factory. How do you think about how long to go with the original brands you bought before you started thinking about acquisitions? If a good deal comes, we're going to do it, even if the timing isn't right. But typically, we like to get through the TSA and like to get through the ERP conversion first, because trying to do a deal in the throes of that can be chaotic. That being said, quickly into the deal. We closed in August of 2018. We knew the folks at Haines Celestial. There's a brand called Arrowhead Mills, which is better for you business. We like that space. 
We thought we could compete against Bob's Red Mill and some of the other players in the category. And shortly after we cut over the system, we acquired that business from Haynes. So it was about 13 months after the deal. So pretty quickly, that deal made a ton of sense for us. And after that, we acquired the frozen pancake business from Phil Anschutz. He owned this thing because he had it book a business he acquired when he bought the Broadmoor. We acquired that frozen pancake business and those two factories from him in April of 2021, integrated that business into Hometown Foods. And then most recently, we just acquired the Birch Benders, the Better Few Pancake Mix, which was part of Sovos. We acquired that at the end of last year and merged that as well into Hometown. So four acquisitions that make up the Hometown business. So in each of those acquisitions, how did you go about integrating whatever management team was running those brands into what you were already doing? The Arrowhead Mills deal, we acquired the factory in the Panhandle it's called Hereford, Texas. And we shut that factory and moved all the production to Toledo. So there was a short transition period and we didn't acquire any people with that business other than the people in the manufacturing plant. That was that one. And the products just went right into our distribution system. So that was pretty turnkey once the equipment had been moved. The frozen pancake business, we initially didn't merge it right away. We let it stand alone, but quickly realized that one of our investment theses was that our dry pancake mix brand, Hungry Jack and Funfetti, could be applied to the frozen business. And we introduced frozen versions of both of those brands to complement the core brand, the Wafflebachers, which was the business that we acquired. We wanted the intellectual property in one place. So we put those two businesses together. The management team that was there was integrated into Hometown Foods, and most of the people were in the factory. So there wasn't a big back office there. So few people that left, but for the most part, we retained almost everyone. And then on Birch Benders, we bought that from Sovos, which Sovos just sold to Campbell's. That's the owner of Rayo. So we did this deal about six months before that deal got done. And that was a simple business where we're in that space already. So it was easy enough to integrate. We're in the pancake aisle, dry mix pancake and frozen waffles, which is the two core categories that they're in. So we acquired that with no people and just integrated it into our organization right off the bat. When you bought that Wafflebachers and you're trying to take that frozen model, I guess you'd say, and apply it to Funfetti and Hungry Jack. What goes into that? We looked at frozen pancakes. The Wafflebockers is the number one brand in the category. The number two brand was Ego. And no one was giving them a run for their money. So we figured we could continue to accelerate performance of the Wafflebockers, which was the number one brand in the space, but also a value brand, and introduce a challenger to Ego with Hungry Jack and bring some innovation and some fun to the category with Funfetti. And that's what we were able to do. And at that time, the supply chain was a mess when we did that deal. That was in the middle of all these problems. And we were able to run those factories really efficiently. So when other companies were having a hard time meeting shipping needs of the customers, we were there to pick up the pieces. Love to hear a little bit about the right side of the balance sheet from your original acquisition and then these tuck-in acquisitions. How did you think about financing the business? Initially, we did a traditional deal with equity and debt. The Arrowhead deal was done with cash because we had excess cash on the balance sheet. The Waffle Bakers, we merged. So we acquired that business as a standalone. So that business was financed with the traditional equity and debt package and ultimately merged in with Hometown Foods. And the deal for Birch Benders, we did off the balance sheet because we had capacity to do it. Between cash and a little more leverage, we were able to fund that thing. So we don't do financial engineering here at Brentwood, but it was a nice stuck in acquisitions. We're able to use the balance sheet on all these cases. We just refinanced the business at the five-year original terminal and just came up and we were able to do that and take a nice dividend. 
So as you look at the optimal capital structure for a business like this, how do you think about the amount of debt to put on it? And that's different today than it was back then with the interest rates, but we use conservative leverage at Brynwood. And I think if you look at the leverage ratio for a portfolio right now, anyone that looked at it that's in this business would say you are conservatively levered. And I think if you look at then our returns, you clearly can see that with the level of leverage that we're using or applying and the returns that we're getting, it's clearly because of the operating performance of the business. And that's a big part about what we're doing at Brynwood. And I think one of the reasons we've been successful, we haven't gotten ourselves in the situation where we need X amount of leverage to make a deal successful, we can do it by just running the businesses better. How do you navigate a business like this during COVID when things just shut down all of a sudden? It was one of the hardest things I've ever been through in my career. April of 2020, probably had 100,000 cases of Pillsbury flour a month. We had a million on order, 10X. And people had lost access to childcare, the schools had closed, and we were asking the employees to come in not five days a week, but seven days a week to run the factory. I think the first day we actually shut that factory down, I insisted we close on Mother's Day. I said, we are not being open on Mother's Day. Too many people have been through such a hard time. I went to the factory and to the office every week because I felt like we needed to show the commitment at the investor level that we were in this together. And the retailers were clamoring for product because any grocer that had flour knew that people were texting each other, go to my store that had flour. So we were able to be pretty smart about it. If somebody needed some extra flour, we said, well, think about that, but we could use a little more business on Sunny D or one of our other brands and were able to really become a partner in this so that we were in it together. How did you bring the employees in a safe way at such an uncertain time? There was no getting around we had to figure this out together. We followed all the protocols and they evolved over time, but there was no way to run the business without bringing people in. It wasn't going to work. And a big part of what we were doing was trying to make sure we follow the protocols and let people make their own judgments about how to be safe. Everyone had a different opinion about this. And if somebody was hyper-concerned, some people just decided they didn't want to work anymore because of it. But most people figured it out, and we try to not set too many rules and let people make their own decisions. So we got a long way with that versus forcing people to do X, Y, or Z throughout the process. We said, we're going to give you all the PPE that you need and everything else and let you make good decisions. So it's obviously a huge challenge working through that. I'd love to hear anything else along the way that was a challenge, say an unexpected challenge or short of your expectations. The inflation for this category was really first and worst. Because if you think about what happened in the supply chain, you went through the first 12 months of the pandemic where we needed every case that we could possibly produce and had to figure that out. And our retail partners needed everything we could sell. To then getting into 2021, where the inflation started, the supply chain became challenging for the business, whether it was getting packaging or raw materials or ingredients. And we had to make the decision of when to price. And that was really the hardest decision of the process because typically in this business, if you're not the market leader, which we're not, you tend not to lead price increases. But there was a feeling of being concerned about price gouging and not wanting to look like you're not being a partner. But the reality of the situation was you could see the price of wheat that had been stable for a long time at four bucks a bushel or something around there, moving up to five to six, ultimately to eight. It got at one point as high as I think 14 when the war with Ukraine broke out. 
So trying to navigate that inflation with our retail partners at a time where most of their offices still weren't open. You used to go on the road when you had pricing action, sit down across the table and work it out. Now you had to do it over Zoom. And if somebody didn't like what you were doing, they turned their camera off and that was the end of the meeting. I give our sales team a lot of credit for working through what was a really hard time in the industry. We went from a situation where you thought you were going to take the first price increase and end up becoming one of several. How do you go about making that decision to take price? Yeah, it was very difficult. Tom Polk and I, our CEO, had a long conversation about this because he didn't want to take pricing first. He wanted to see how the market was going to react to pricing that would ultimately be taken by the market leader. But I said, look, through the P&L, the other thing is that pricing notification to the retailers is typically 90 days. So you announce a price increase and then you have 90 days before it's implemented. That's what most of the requirements of these retailer contracts are. So we didn't have time, in my judgment, to wait. So when I said, if we keep paying X dollars a bushel for wheat, we're going to go out of business. And so we made the decision to price and that was ultimately was the right decision. And we never really caught the markets. As the price kept going up, we had to take pricing again just to cover our inflation. But the big thing we focused on was being transparent with our retail partners. They have private label programs. They're buying ingredients as well. They can see this. If you were fair and provided a rationale that made sense, that bridged where you were and where you needed to go, we found that that one got us a long way. The second thing is the supply chain was discoordinated at the time that being able to ship was a big part of making it more acceptable to take pricing. So our service levels in this business have been terrific. And I think that got us a long way. Ultimately, everyone is dealing with the same inflation. The big thing we were able to do while we were confronting this inflation was we were able to provide exceptional service levels. And that got us a long way with the retailers. What did you see in the behavior of your competitors as it related to that price and service component? The biggest reason some of the larger CPG companies didn't price sooner is they had come off 12 months of exceptional performance. If you're a grocery-oriented business, food service disappeared. So all the eating occasions were occurring from something that was being sold through a store. And their numbers were terrific. And I said to Tom Polk, our CEO, I said, I think it's going to take these guys another quarter to realize it because they're going to have to come off some of these high comps and then they're going to see this inflation and they're ultimately going to realize that they better do something about it. And it was about a 90-day lag before we saw the action. And I think it was a lot of that was also attributed to that they were so focused on service levels. Most of these companies were still working from home, so their businesses and their people weren't as connected. And we were working in the office the whole time because we took the attitude that our employees in our offices need to support the people in our factories now more than ever. And we're not going to be able to do that if we're not together. I think that got us in front of a lot of these problems before some of the bigger people realized what was happening to them. What were some of the other key initiatives you took to really make this business go? The big part of what we did was lean in on some of the innovation and new products that we talked about and really started out marketing our competitors. We have a terrific business with Walmart. They've been a huge partner of ours. We focus on having price leadership in the categories. We've adopted our strategies around promotions and marketing and new products to meet the needs of our customers and have really worked hard to earn the trust, not only of our retail partners, but the consumers that buy our and love our products. So how's the business done since you bought it? It's been a really great deal. The management team has been terrific. We have almost doubled the sales since when we bought it. And some of that's through organic growth and the businesses we acquired. And obviously some big part of that's through acquisition. 
We now have three factories, almost 850,000 square feet of total space. We're up to almost 900 employees. So the business has gotten a lot bigger. It's our second biggest investment in terms of total sales after our beverage business. And it's been a great category. It's a great group of people, a really dedicated, hardworking team members in our factories and terrific C-suite in our business in Chicago. So after you've transformed this, chucked in a couple of acquisitions, have everything humming, how do you think about where to take the business next? Clearly, as a private equity investor, there is a time and place for every business. I get emotionally connected to the businesses we own because I spend so much time with them. But part of the business is you ultimately have to look to divest the things that have meant a lot to you. And this company has been great. A point in time will come where we need to sell it. We're just past the five-year mark on this deal. It's a terrific platform. We did a lot of the heavy lifting on standing the business up and doing the tuck-in acquisitions. We've done three acquisitions pretty seamlessly, so it's a terrific platform to buy and build from. It's got really strong market position now. If you add the total businesses together in the baking and pancake mix space, it's a number two business in aggregate after General Mills. So we have a bigger base in these core categories than ConAgra and Quaker, which is a division of Pepsi Foods. So we've made it a really attractive asset that has a long way to go. How do you think about who the natural next owner would be? That's the magic part of this business. You just never know. You can think of the exit from the beginning, but in all the years I've been doing this, you'll be surprised at where the process takes you and who might be interested. It's a really active time in the market right now. There's a lot of big deals have been done in the food space. The Hostess deal just got announced by Smuckers and Campbell's just announced the Sovos deal. Ferraro just bought Jelly Belly. People are looking for good, high-quality assets. Hank, what are your biggest lessons learned from this deal? We hired a CEO quickly because we thought we needed to have one. He was somebody that didn't come from our system. It wasn't a good fit. And I don't think he lasted 60 days. And I became the CEO of the company for the period of time until we hired Tom Polk. So one of the lessons is you don't have to put somebody in the seat during a TSA right away. You got to put the right person in the seat. And the second thing is challenges we had around the distribution network was keeping the system that was in place at the time the business was acquired. And we needed to rethink what was the right way to set it up, not just the way that was easiest to transition the business. And I think we cost ourselves some heartburn on that, but we fixed it quickly. And the key things in these businesses, when you know something's wrong, act quickly. Don't hire a consultant or somebody else to do it. We have the people and the resources here, the operating skills in the companies and at the firm to do it ourselves. I have one more question for you, which is what's your favorite aspect of private equity? Doing the deals for what we're doing is a commodity in the business. It's an important part of what we do, but the fun part of the business is about building it. My dad always told me when he founded this business almost 40 years ago, this isn't just a vehicle for generating returns. That's obviously a critical part of what we do, but we're trying to build something that I want to see institutionalized. My son now works here. My dad still comes to the office. It's a big part of what we're trying to do. And the, the most fun is building these businesses and seeing the factory in Toledo. They were worried it was going to be closed. Now it's thriving. We've created 60 jobs in that factory, people that needed work and wanted work. And that's super rewarding. We took a business that wasn't as important to someone else and made it really important to us. And you've created a lot of success for the people that worked inside the companies. And that's the most rewarding thing. And when those things go right, then your investors do well. That's a big part of what we're doing. I love the companies that we're in. I'm on the road all the time. I love being with our customers and in our factories. I've been to two of our factories in the last 10 days. It's just a big part of what we're doing. So Hank, I got to pardon the pun, but 
just want to thank you so much for sharing this very tasty deal with us. You're welcome, Ted. It's great to see you. And thanks for coming over to see me uh, this afternoon. I really appreciate it and love your product. Thanks for listening to the show. If you like what you heard, hop on our website at capitalallocators.com, where you can access past shows, join our mailing list, and sign up for premium content. Have a good one and see you next time.